And in this portion of WGTD's morning show, we're going to be talking about the very important connection between our brain and the food we eat. This is a connection that is of paramount importance, and it can certainly make a tremendous difference in our own mental and emotional well-being, as, as well as, of course, our physical well-being. And this is something that has been explored for some time by my morning show guest, Dr. Uma Naidu, who is a board-certified psychiatrist, nutrition specialist, and professional chef. And she is the director of nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital, the first clinic of its kind in the United States, where, among other things, she consults on nutritional interventions for people who are psychiatrically and or medically ill. Uh, so she has, over the course of, of her life and her professional study and ex exploration, has come to understand the connection between brain and gut, between uh, what our life is like mentally and emotionally with the foods that we consume. And uh, she has outlined all of this in a brand new book published by Little Brown Spark called this is your brain on food, an indispensable guide to the surprising foods that fight depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, ADHD, and more. Dr. Uma Naidu, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you so much, Greg. It's lovely to be here. I appreciate the fact that uh, although your book is very much scientifically based, that uh, there is plenty of personal that is in this book as well. And one of the things that you tell us is that uh, for someone who cares so much about the food we eat and the effect that the food we eat has on us physically and mentally, that you are somebody, although you are a very uh, able professional chef now, you actually started to cook relatively late in life. Explain to our listeners uh, why this proved to be the case. Uh, that's a that's a good that's a good one, Greg. I uh, grew up in a very large Indian family or South Asian family in South Africa, and was surrounded by aunts, grandmothers, uh, cousins who are older than me that cooked, and there was a need for me to cook. So I would hang around the kitchen, around the delicious tastes and smells, and my family was also a very large number of physicians. So there was all, always also a focus on nutrition and good eating, but delicious food. When I moved to Boston to study, uh, it was quite far away. And when I uh, began my journey at Harvard, I, the one thing I could bring with me were my mom's spices and recipes. And uh, that helped me get through residency in terms of learning to cook. So I would very frequently be asking questions, but I discovered that unlike a chore that cooking can sometimes be, I really look forward to it so much that it became my space for mindfulness and, and stress relief at the end of a very busy day of studying or working. And I carry that forward into residency. Um, and uh, in residency, I started to talk to my patients as I was prescribing medications. Um, and, and, you know, really became part of the language I began to use. But, but that is how I grew to cook very late in life. Hmm. While we're talking about the personal, I, I want to give you a chance to talk about one of the people to whom you dedicate the book, someone whom you refer to affectionately as Pinetown Granny, your hmm. maternal 
grandmother. Uh, explain to our listeners the important role that she played in your early life, and in particular when it came to your own understanding of and appreciation of good and healthy food. Absolutely. My uh, mom, it uh, starts off with my mom and my dad. My mom is a double-boarded physician, and I was born while she was in medical school. So during the day, I uh, was cared for from, by my maternal grandmother, Pintan Granny. And um, Pintan is actually the, the suburb of the uh, town you know, that she, where she lived. So, so, so we would just refer to that. But of course, I had more affectionate terms that I would use for her. But she was, uh, she, she, we would get up in the morning, um, or when I was dropped off, I should say, and we would pick uh, fresh, freshly grown vegetables in the garden and decide together what she was going to prepare. And I was little, so I wasn't allowed inside the kitchen, but I could stand at the door and talk to her about what she was making, what she was using, why she was using the healthy spices that she was using, and how she was preparing. So we'd have this dialogue around food. And so I learned at an early age that, you know, freshly picked vegetables being prepared or whatever else she was cooking were things that were almost inherent uh, to how, how I understood food. And she, of course, was a very meaningful person in my life because I spent my daytime with her. And at the end of a busy day of studying, my mom would pick me up uh, and take me, take me home to, to stay with the rest of my family. So Pantan Grady was, uh, was a very big part of my life. One other personal matter that uh, I want to be sure to ask you about, and you talk about it in your book, is the fact that uh, you are a cancer survivor and that uh, some of what you came to understand about the connection between uh, our mental and emotional and physical well-being and the food we eat uh, was really brought home to you in a very big way as you underwent the uh, gauntlet of chemotherapy. Uh, as your cancer was was treated. Uh, tell our listeners, uh, at least in brief, some of what you learned or what this experience confirmed for you in terms of what you already understood to be true about the importance of the food we eat. You know, I uh, was in a large amount of shock uh, when I was diagnosed, at least for the first, uh, first, first week. And uh, partly because it happened suddenly, I was feeling otherwise healthy. So here's a shout out to always get your mammogram. Um, and I also was blessed by the fact that I live in Boston and have access to premium medical care. I feel very fortunate for that. And because of that, I was diagnosed fully and began treatment in a very short period of time. So it's almost as though my mind and my brain hadn't really caught up with the rest of my body. And on the day that I began my first treatment, um, I was fearful. I was anxious. Um, I was having my morning cup of turmeric tea with a pinch of black pepper and the, the thing that I, you know, the little blend I use at home and thinking through all the side effects I knew of the medications I was about to face. And realized that, you know, I, I sort of thought to myself, I'm facing this. Why am I not thinking the way that I do when I talk to my other patients? It's obviously very different when you're the patient. And something sort of clicked in as, as I was uh, really was boiling the water for my tea and, and the kettle shut off. And the thing that happened was I realized I should be doing what I tell my patients to do. Now, that being said, Greg, of course, I was trying to eat a healthy diet and trying to follow all of that. But when I say 
that, that I was feeling so anxious, I realized the way that I can help myself is through how I eat today. And that led to a very big change in how I approached my treatment and my diagnosis. Once I kind of got through that shock, and I just started to prepare my meals in, in a particular way, really focus on anxiety, uh, you know, foods that work well, anxiety, really started to think more about how to further fortify my gut microbiome by how I ate. And that was a significant change, moving from shock to kicking in to the fact that, you know, I could actually practice this in a much more elevated way myself because I was now ill. Hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Uma Naidu about her new book, This Is Your Brain on Food. She is Director of Nutritional and Lifestyle Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. So one of the interesting points that is made in your book is that in recent years, the connection between the brain and the gut, between our mental and emotional well-being and the food we consume, that that connection more recently was, in a sense, interrupted, but that once upon a time, in the 18th and 19th centuries, at least many doctors had, had a fairly decent understanding of how our, our body systems are connected, and that, for instance, our digestive system and our nervous system have a connectedness that, at some point in the late 19th century and into the 20th century, was largely abandoned or, or ignored or, or forgotten. Can you just explain why that connection was lost at that point in time, a connection which now we are beginning to, in a sense, regain or reconnect? Sure. You know, I'm, I, I'm not 100% sure that it was entirely lost. I think that, that individuals who were really researching gut microbiome and those connections continued. I, I think that the way I would probably think about it um, for the work that I do is that we, we didn't make that linkage between food and the brain and the, the connection through the gut-brain axis until I would say more recently in the sense that people know um, and doctors know how to counsel their patients about how to eat for hypertension, for obesity, for diabetes, for high cholesterol. But we really don't talk to our patients about how you can eat for better mental health. And as I began to sort of uncover these connections through my clinical work and really understanding, reading, and learning nutrition, what I found was that there was more, as I uncovered it, there was actually really good research on the gut microbiome that existed uh, in mental health as well, in the sense that studies were being done that connected the, the, the impacts of food, which we outline in the book, with you know, emotional states. But no one was really having this conversation. And I think that that was the change that I made early on in how I began to work with patients. Um, so I think that the research was, was going on, but it might have been more related to gastrointestinal conditions and things like that. One of the points that you make in your book is that this connection between the body's nervous system and our digestive system is not just something that we sort of imagine is there or, or, or believe is there, but it is actually a connection that to at least some extent is a physical connection. I mean, it's, there's an actual physical connection that in a sense one could actually see if you were able to look into the body. It's, it is not 
not a theoretical sort of connection. Explain what that actual physical connection is. Exactly. So, um, it, when from whence we were born, and as our um, organs developed, uh, even as we were each a fetus, what happens is that there's there is a nervous system that develops in our body, and one very specific major cranial nerve is the vagus nerve, and the vagus nerve ha extends in many different ways in the body, but it connects directly, anatomically, physiologically, biochemically, the gut to the brain. It, it is a direct link. So you're absolutely right, Greg. It is not imagined. Uh, it's, it's not something that's theoretical. It physically exists in our bodies. And I think what's helpful for people who um, are thinking about mental well-being, because um, I will point out that, you know, the, 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 what I speak about in the book, we, we, we divide it by diagnoses, but there are many people who don't fit into a diagnosis. And I think that it's helpful for those who are just seeking, especially in current times, to feel better emotionally, can actually use the suggestions to, in a preventative way to really fortify their gut-brain connection by how they eat. And one of the reasons that it's really important is that serotonin is known as the happiness hormone and serotonin is the um, is, is in the medications um, formulated in the medications that are prescribed for depression and anxiety and other mental health conditions so things like uh, fluoxetine or Prozac are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors well more than 90 percent of the serotonin receptors are located in the gut so when you think about it, if what you're eating is being metabolized and digested and going through different processes in your gut and the serotonin receptors are right there, that also provides for you that important physical connection. Hmm. One of the most interesting moments in the book is when you talk about how this connection between the gut and the brain is a, is a delicate system, as in all delicate systems, things can go wrong. And I, I think we don't always stop to think about the way our bodies are put together as delicate. <laughs> I mean, we might think of ourselves as delicate <laughs> when we fall down and we break our wrist or something, but right. I think by and large we think of the body when it's working normally or working well, that it's you know, fairly kind of robust and... and mm -hmm. Strong. Yeah, yeah and, and, and it, it all kind of makes sense. But, but to describe the body as a delicate system, and in particular this connection between the nervous system and the digestive system, uh, points to something that is, is, I think, really important in what you're talking about. Because then if we are making poor choices in what we are taking into our body, then it's no wonder that this delicate system is going to be adversely affected. What are some of the ways in which that is... Uh, occurs most commonly. Uh, that's a that's a great point, Greg, and I appreciate that you that you picked it up on that. Simply because a lot of individuals feel like when doctors make recommendations about healthy eating, that they are you know that every doctor says the same thing, and in fact we do. Uh, it, it is in fact true. However. I think the connection that we need to understand is that when we're making certain recommendations, they go to impact how food is metabolized in our body. So if we were eating a diet of pizza, ice cream, potato chips, and processed foods, which contain, uh, you know, uh, uh, dyes, stabilizers, um, food preservatives, and, and often quite a lot of sodium and added sugar, then that's 
how our body is being built. And the standard American diet, which you know people call the sad diet, um, is in fact sad because most of us, or many of us, I should say, while we might be trying to embrace a healthier lifestyle, often struggle with these things. And I say that uh, as part of that group, I, I, I don't think any one of us is perfect. We're all on a journey. But when we feed our bodies with, sat, with the wrong types of fats, with trans fats, which have been linked in studies to actually increase aggression in, 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 in individuals, um, with high, high levels of preservatives from processed foods, with added sugars, um, and those types of ingredients, then we are not doing our body, but most importantly, we also not doing our brain and our emotional health any, any good. Those foods just drive processes such as inflammation in the gut, which ends up with conditions such as leaky gut over time, and that imbalance in our gut microbiome can also lead to mental health conditions. So, you know, it becomes more important than just eat your leafy greens, because while we might say that, there's also a burgeoning amount of research around the content of certain greens and vegetables and fruit that are really healthy for our gut. So a healthy whole foods balanced diet that includes um, sources of fiber, which you only get from fruit, vegetables, beans, nuts, legumes, and seeds. You cannot get it from animal or, or seafood proteins. It's very important. So it, it's more than just eat your salad or eat your greens. There are many different nutrients in these types of food that we discuss in the book, which are really meant to help help people understand the real connection and not just the glib statements that doctors might sometimes make um, that, that we are saying it for a reason. There are real reasons that this will fortify your gut versus eating a, a, you know, a diet of pizza and ice cream. And, and I'm all for people having a treat day in the week, not a cheat day. Cheat day makes us psychologically feel like we're hiding and we're doing something bad. But treat day of whether it is pizza and ice cream that you enjoy, you know, have that on, on, on your night off or special night of the week for you but don't overeat eat it with you know portion control enjoy it savor it but then the rest of the week try to embrace the healthy habits because that form of balance will really get you towards a better um, a better sense of mental well-being it'll fortify your mental health and your gut microbiome if in fact you're otherwise doing okay but you want to continue to feel that way and if you're not feeling good say you're anxious stressed you know, mildly depressed or whatever the symptoms might be, it will also help you. And uh, we should say that your book uh, includes chapters devoted to things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, ADHD, and more, uh, in which you, you spell out uh, specific suggestions on what people might, might eat uh, to make a positive difference if those are issues with which they are uh, contending. I really appreciated a, a point you made uh, in the book that I think is of, of paramount importance and yet something we don't really stop to think about. You, you write at one point, a dearth of good dietary choices leads to an increase in mental health issues and mental health issues in turn lead to poor eating habits. I had never stopped to think about the vicious cycle that we are often talking about here in which we get ourselves into mental or emotional trouble because of what we are eating and then those emotionally, um, mental and emotional uh, troubles uh, in a sense deepen the pit in which we find ourselves because we, ju- mm-hmm. we make increasingly poor eating habits. And I should think that, that breaking that harmful cycle is probably uh, 
an indispensable part of of uh, of helping somebody recover from some of these issues. Um, absolutely, you know, every everyone who may have been diagnosed with an actual mental illness or anyone suffering from just not feeling particularly well in any one of the domains that we discuss and you just just mentioned, um, you know, could start to feel better through embracing a better diet. Some people start from a different baseline, Greg. You know, some people have, um, uh, you know, it's not only food that causes these problems; they may have genetic, other socio-economic, or many other factors, trauma, or many things that drive how they're feeling emotionally. But here's the thing. Food is something we all have to do. We all have to do it anyway. And my, my mantra is why not do it well on most days of the week so that you are really embracing better food choices that will fortify your mental health, prevent the onset or worsening of mental conditions, um, and, and really overall and importantly, also help your physical health. Um, I think that, you know, the physical health connection, like I said at the, at the beginning of our conversation, people know about, they know that they shouldn't be eating a certain food because of high cholesterol, but they don't really make those associations with mental health. And I think, especially now where we are stressed in many different ways and feeling um, the American Psychiatric Association did a survey very early on in COVID, which showed that one of the things amongst all the different conditions that were worsening, one of the things that people were most concerned about was uncertainty. And I think that where we are so uncertain about so many things moving forward, one way we can help ourselves is just use this time to maybe reset how we're eating on most days of the week. Hmm. Briefly, can you explain why bacteria is such an important factor in all of this? That's something we often don't stop to think about when we're thinking about choosing the right foods. In what way is bacteria a major player here? Sure. So a gut microbiome is it actually contains approximately 39 trillion different bacteria different bugs, let's call them, because they're not just bacteria, um, they're, they're different types of bugs. And those, those are part of what we call the gut microbiome. They can either, Greg, work for us or against us. They simply, um, they live there, they help with, you know, the regulation of different body systems, including the immune system, including, you know, what we talked about in terms of mental well-being. And when you eat poorly, you you basically feed the bad bugs in your gut and the bad bugs take over and they start to cause disease. And one of the mechanisms of the different mechanisms is through inflammation. If you, if you eat well on most days of the week and you are, you know, embracing healthy whole foods, my, my other mantra is eat the orange, skip the orange juice. The orange juice loses its fiber, has tons of added sugar. But if you eat the whole fruit or you eating healthy whole foods, um, including plants, vegetables, lean proteins and healthy sources of um, fat, such as olive oil, for example, you are starting to embrace a healthier diet. When you do that, those bugs... Um, in the gut that are good bugs will thrive. And fiber is one of the very important foods that they need. Fiber is obtained from, um, it cannot be obtained from uh, animal or seafood proteins and can be obtained from fruit, vegetables, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, and healthy whole grains. So just by doing simple things, it could be one simple thing that you change in your diet today. You are then helping those good bacteria thrive. And the balance of the good bugs and the bad bugs is critical to our physical and mental health. A last quick question. How difficult is it to know what 
differences being made in the body by the food we're eating versus other choices that we make in terms of our lifestyle. And of course, this is something you've studied and you are director and founder of the Nutritional and Lifestyle uh, Psychiatry Center. Uh, So these are obviously intertwined. Is it sometimes hard to know what is being affected by food versus what is being affected by other things like exercise or sleep or whatever? So um, I think, uh, again, you know, I think the lifestyle factors are hugely important. My, my book is really written about the food, but my model of care in nutritional psychiatry is really a holistic, uh, integrated, functional approach to psychiatry. And what I mean by that is mind-body connections, sources of mindfulness, um, using, you know, uh, relaxation te- techniques to help with anxiety, wondering about sleep hygiene, adequate hydration, proper exercise and movement. Um, Many of these, in fact, all of them, including things like yoga, have all been brought um, through research to show positive connections to mental health when done well. So all of those factors are very important in how I work with any individual on a nutritional psychiatry treatment plan. What we highlighted in the book was really the food because that we felt was, was something that people could start to do immediately. And we also know that you know we, we generally as a nation don't eat that well and would be a good place to start. But you're absolutely right. All of those measures are extremely important. How do we know? With food, it's usually that inflammation gets set up in the body and that someone, for example, a young executive I treated who had gotten this wonderful promotion at work, you know, came to me with new onset anxiety, thinking she needed a medication. But it turned out over about 18 months, due to the promotion, she was flying a lot, traveling, eating in airports, eating in, in the snacks in the bar fridge at the hotels, um, not eating home food or home cooked meals any longer because of this promotion. And over time, it impacted her gut microbiome. The bad bugs kind of took over. She had a significant amount of inflammation. And the way that it presented was with extreme panic attacks um, that were new to her. But when we really uncovered what we needed to do, it was, is, it was helping, her, helping her embrace her healthier diet that she'd been eating before she became ill. Mm. Uh, your book, of course, is chock full of other similar sorts of stories. And, and again, lots of very specific information about the kind of foods that we can eat to um, make a, a very uh, significant difference uh, in, in various issues with which we might be contending. The book, again, is titled, This is Your Brain on Food, an indispensable guide to the surprising foods that fight depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, ADHD, and more published by Little Brown Spark, the author, Dr. Uma Naidu. Dr. Naidu, it has been a great pleasure for me to speak with you uh, uh, on The Morning Show. Thank you for giving the world this fascinating book, and best wishes to you. Thank you so much, Greg. It was a pleasure to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. You're listening to The Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Now an interview from The Morning Show Archive, which was recorded and originally broadcast back in 2009. I have just finished reading one of the most unforgettable, harrowing memoirs I have ever read called What's Left of Us, a Memoir of Addiction, written by Richard Farrell, who is uh, gifted in so many ways, a filmmaker, teacher, journalist, uh, of course, author, an adjunct professor of English at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. And perhaps you have seen his uh, highly acclaimed documentary, High on Crack Street, and uh, uh, he joins us today from uh, actually a 
the trailer of a film set to talk about this memoir and the experience of what it was like for him to look back at some of the most painful, self-destructive chapters in his life as he battled a, a, a severe uh, addiction to heroin, uh, which occurred at least in some part uh, as a reaction to uh, some of the real deep pain which he experienced in, in his childhood. And it is all here in the pages of this incredible book published by Citadel Press, again called What's Left of Us. And I'm very honored to be able to speak with Richard Farrell for the next few minutes about this remarkable book. Richard Farrell, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Uh, tell us what film set you're on right now, exactly what's going on, and uh, uh, with the understanding that at any moment uh, pressing matters on this film might take you away from the interview. That's right. That's right. We're just waiting to get the call from the ADs when we got to go back. Um, so, uh, but uh, hopefully I'll be here for a while. I'm up on the set of The Fighter, which is being filmed in Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, it's starring Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale. And um, it is uh, based partially on a HBO documentary film I did called High on Crack Street, where I followed uh, three crack addicts for 18 months. One of those crack addicts was Dickie Eklund, who was a world-class fighter, fought Sugar Ray Leonard. Um, actually, I was yesterday in, in scenes all day with Sugar Ray Leonard. Me and him, it was great. But um, he uh, fought Sugar Ray Leonard, went the distance, uh, and lost. He could have been a champion, lost his um, career to drugs. Well, during the filming of High on Crack Street, his younger brother, Mickey Ward, his half-brother, was coming up. And he was on his way as a fighter, and... Um, uh, Dickie went to jail during our film. Mickey went on. And this movie is about Dickie getting out of jail and the two of them, Mickey and, and, and Dickie, putting their demons down long enough to become champions of the world. And uh, Mickey Ward fought three unbelievable fights with Otero Gotti, who, who just died the other day, tragically. But um, So I'm here uh, in this unbelievable, surreal setting uh, playing myself, Richie Farrell, in the movie The Fighter. It's, hmm. uh, it's amazing. Well, and you're one of the screenwriters of the film, too, if I understand my, uh, my, uh, my yeah. memory. I worked on this film for two and a half years. Uh, Darren Aronofsky and Scott Silver. Uh, of course, we all know Darren. He was the director of The Wrestler. And Scott Silver wrote Eight Mile. They called me up and said, Richie, we want you on this film. Uh, went and met them, and I started working on it April 1st. Uh, 2007, which was actually my birthday. I was 20 years straight at that time, and um, for the past two and a half years, Scott and I have um, have kicked around this script, and uh, here we are shooting it. Wow, an amazing thing, and uh, essentially in your own backyard. Unbelievable. I don't hmm. live there anymore, but you know, funny thing is, I was driving down this morning to be for an 8, 8 a.m. call, and I said, "This is surreal." I see the the um, smoke tower that's still up. The mill is, is, has been torn down. I see the smoke tower still up, and I said, wow, 22 years ago, I attempted suicide in that mill right there, and we're about a football field away filming. Hmm. It, it's, it's been an incredible um, story. You know, I, I, I got straight. Five years later, came back to Lowell to make Crack Street. Um, you know, went on to with my career and uh, wrote, uh, you know, other stuff, and then worked on the... On the um, screenplay while I was writing my memoir, and here I am playing myself. It's just a complete circle. Hmm. One, of the, one of the nuggets of wisdom among many in this book is at one point when you essentially 
put to rest uh, what for you is the incorrect myth that time heals everything. You said your dad always told you time would heal everything, but you say flat out he's wrong. I mean, in a sense, uh, your book is about how it takes a whole lot more than time to heal some of the deep wounds which someone like yourself has experienced in, in life. And, and for you, actually, the, the healing of, of these many wounds and the healing of your addiction uh, was, was something that came from all, all sides. Uh, untangle for us just what it was that allowed you to finally step away from your life of addiction. You know, it, it, it's amazing. I, I'm asked that all the time in interviews, and I still don't have an answer. For years and years, I suffered with uh, survivor's guilt. Why me? Why are all my friends dead? I just couldn't put it all together. And I just, you know, when I, when I said I don't want to live like this anymore, and I, I had two small boys, I just burnt our house down, my, my wife at the time was living with my mom, uh, you know, and I just said, I think my kids will be better off with someone else raising, not this junkie on the street. And when I lived, something happened to me. And, of course, the, the uh, memo I was told from that 28-year-old junkie in rehab and detox, the seven days in detox. So, um, I, you know, and then I get out. I, something caught to me. There's something spiritual happened to me. It says, I didn't die, so there's a reason for this. And I just kept going one day at a time, one day at a time, and all of a sudden the ones added up to 22, 22 mm. years, you know. So I don't really know, but regardless of where, regardless of where my career took me, and it took me on many paths. From I became a journalist, covered the war in Bosnia, worked at HBO, wrote another bestseller. You know, just worked on this uh, on this um, script, and no, it it regardless where it brought me, those ghosts from my past hunted me down. It would haunt me, hmm. and I knew that I had to go back in to this darkness. To write it, and on July 1st when it came out uh, on my uh, book party signing, it was like I cried, just cried and cried. It, it was finally gone. I had finally made peace with myself. Hmm. It was over. Your childhood was incredibly difficult for a couple of different reasons. One of them was uh, because of uh, the physical condition in which you were born, and in a sense, uh, what that did to your own father's dreams for who you were going to be. Uh, tell us uh, about the, the circumstances surrounding your birth and that difficulty and and uh, the difficulties which sprang from that. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's what happened. I was born with um, what they thought, cerebral palsy. I didn't walk, and I, um, I was a breech birth. The loss of oxygen destroyed a section of my brain. My father, no way, good Irish Catholic, you know, wounded veteran in Korea, said no way was I'm going to have a crippled son. He found a uh, neurologist at the VA hospital who said, hey, listen, that part of his brain is dead, so it's not sending signals to his right arm or his right leg. So what you have to do, you have to become his brain. You have to put him on the floor every single morning and night, and you've got to rip and stretch that leg straight so the muscles won't atrophy. And he was determined to do this. They tell me it was pretty awful that it was, you know, a young baby screaming and crying as he's ripping at me. Um, and, but but he succeeded. He succeeded. I was a football star in high school, and you know, had colleges looking at me. His goal was to have me play for Notre Dame. And when my uh, chop block ended everything, um, I I um, he, he fell in love with Perkin Hand after my first knee operation, and my father disowned me. And um, it, you know, it 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 wasn't until I started having um, 
uh, kids that my father came back into my life. And then, of course, tragically, um, my mother was in the hospital having a hysterectomy. And um, uh, my father wasn't responding to the phone call. He called me. I went to the house. As soon as I pulled up the driveway, I saw the maroon uh, Monte Carlo there. I knew something was wrong. I knew something was going on, I mean, because everybody knew my father was having an affair with this former um, uh, uh, student that he was teaching English to. And um, there they were on the ground doing their thing in the, in the heat of passion. She saw me first, and I just completely wigged out, threw her out the back porch. She went down. And my father was on the ground, and I pulled a chair up next to him, kitchen chair. And he, he had a habit of doing the... Um, you know, he, you know, the Red Fox routine. Elizabeth, I'm coming, grabbing his chest like he was having a heart attack. And, um, you know, I didn't go for it. I didn't go for it. I, I just said, you know, you hypocrite. All this mass and communion every day, all this stuff, mums in the heart. I just sat there talking to him. I don't know how long. I, I've been trying to figure it out for years and years. But all of a sudden, his lips started to swell and get blue. And I realized that he wasn't faking. I ran down the hall, grabbed a... a um, a bottle of nitro on the on his bureau came back the, the bottle went you know i thought the cap was was uh closed i went to push down it was open it went all over the place grabbed a couple tried to get it under his tongue but he died right there in my um uh right there in my arms and um that night at the hospital when i went to the hospital uh i i had a guy meet me that was a heroin addict uh never shot drugs before i wasn't into needles and he um shot a um, bag of heroin into my Left arm, I went upstairs on the fifth floor of the same uh, hospital my father was pronounced dead on. Went upstairs, and I told my mom that my father had died. You had specifically sought out heroin because you couldn't think of another way to absorb this this pain and guilt and Absolutely. and Absolutely. and trauma. And, and unfortunately, that first shot of heroin led to many more after that. Part of this story is of how your father... Uh, was in so many respects or at so many points in time brutal to you. And uh, when you were so hungry for his love and approval, at one point in talking to your counselor at Detox, you say, there was only one thing I ever truly wanted in my life. I wanted my dad to be proud of me, and I would have done anything to accomplish it. Uh, Talk a moment more about that terrible hunger, which, of course, so many... Uh, children have to be yeah, I mean, loved and admired by their parents and something which for you proved to be quite elusive. Right, and that, that's the biggest thing out of him dying in my arms. It was over right then. All I wanted him to do was to love me for who I was. And I was constantly striving for that, so it was over. There was nothing I could do, and heroin was the only thing that would kill that emotional pain that I killed the guy that I loved, that I wanted him to love me. And it will never have an opportunity again. And, and you know, they, I wrote this op-ed piece, Father's Day uh, piece, right uh, in June. It was in the L.A. Times. And, uh, it, it, you know, I tell a story about how brutal he was to me. And I talk about in, in the, uh, my 13th birthday, how he had a birthday party, for, a big party. When everybody left, he took one present downstairs, unwrapped a set of boxing gloves. And he continued to just beat me from one end of the playroom to the other end of the playroom. I collapsed in his in his arms, crying, and um, you know he said, "I did this for you to make you strong. You're going to need this." So I mean, I have tons of those brutality. Uh, 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 you know, he was brutal. But then 
I remember going to trial for the Little League, and I was the only kid that didn't make it. And I used this in the story, the juxtaposition. Uh, and and he was there on the tryouts, and you know people would see me running, and uh, and and he, he, hey, Mick, uh, um, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, and people would see me running, and uh, they were laughing, stick, and I saw my father. Um, uh, see that, Mickey? I'm a star. Um, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Mickey okay. Ward, the, the fight is. Uh... Sorry, Mick. Um, so uh, you know, and and he was, he, you know, he was. Oh, there's my shirt. So. Um, one star. You get two stars. All right, thanks. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Thanks, thanks, brother. Um, I'll see. You. Uh, so, so um, uh, that's Mickey Ward, who the who the fighter is about, the real Mickey Ward. Um, wow. Um, so, um, you know, the the thing is, he saw me cry when I try and get the ground balls and run up to him. The kids would be snickering at the way I ran and throw, and we both drove back in the car. Um, silently you know and i was crying i looked over he was crying and he just reached over and grabbed my hand you know and the next day he walked up the hill to richard k donahue who was jfk's advisor in uh washington and to paul songas he walked around and he got sponsorship went to a local sporting goods store and had them front all kinds of uniforms and equipment he started the shed park minor league Hmm. so that every kid would play and it's still going today so you know and 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 so you you see the juxtaposition of that love how he um he brutally for what he thought he was loving me by making me strong hmm. and, and so uh I, I just never could get him to 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 you know to 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 love me the way I want just for being me right uh one of the things that you uh wonder about in in uh, on the pages of this memoir is a little bit about how you survived and your brother Sean and and your mother how you could survive life in a house like this and um you point you pose this question how would mom continue without the madness in her life i know it's crazy but after a while you thrive inside turmoil yeah. Would you say that was true of you as well, that in fact did some of these, the, the horrific way in which your father treated you, uh, was was there some ways in which you, you managed to thrive in that turmoil, or for you was the cost very different? No, it's ironic. My father, the, the, the madness that I grew up in gave me the basis to survive everything I've been in, everything I've do, I do in my life, everything, it doesn't matter. What my father did to me actually gave me the courage and the discipline to thrive and and in turmoil. When when it's against the wall, when it's the rubber meets the road, when it's time to perform, I'm there. There's nothing in it. I see my father. I hear my father. There's just no stopping. And so that, that's the ironic thing. I thrive now because of what my father did to me. Hmm. Way back when I was young. That is an awful irony, isn't it? One of the most terrible things you describe is a punishment your father rendered in which, with duct tape, he secured your arms and your legs and taped over your mouth and your nose. You could scarcely breathe and taped over your eyes and then went at you with an electric carving knife. I mean, not stabbing you, but threatening to do so. And you, you talk of that horrible humming and i mean 
the unbelievable terror which this uh, caused in you. And then he tells you, you're too young to understand, but I did this for your own good. This will protect you. I mean, this was your father's twisted way of trying to be an attentive father to you. I mean, we could scarcely imagine such a thing. Yeah, when I when I urinated off the sound, I was so you know I just I just you know hysteric. I couldn't see. I heard it coming. I mean, he caught me hitchhiking, and the next thing I know, I was going there, and and you know I I, I was um, completely hysterical. I you know I urinated all over myself, and 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 um, you know it, it it was just like he said to me, he did it for me because if the boogeyman had caught me, what happened? We got to go, brother. Yes. Sure. Okay. I'll Okay, I'll be right there. All right. So, um, uh, you know, he said he he said to me, um, I did it for you. I did it for you because if the boogeyman had got, if a bad guy had got you thumbing, this was what they could have done to you. Hmm. Uh, we ha- can we take one more minute? Yeah, we have one more minute. Okay. Sure. You you uh, most of the book, the framework is of these seven days which you spend in detox. Seven days right. which for you make a real difference. Among the many things we learn in that book is how. It was amazing for you to see the common ground between you and the others who were there. I mean, in a sense, something like a heroin addiction is a great leveler. I mean, it, yeah. it, it plays no favorites. And uh, yeah. uh, this was something that you were caught in, and uh, some escaped, and others did not. That's right. That's right. It's a, I was one of the lucky ones. I don't know why uh, I escaped it, but I think for right now, you know, I'm looking at my partner here that's playing the HBO uh, producer here, a great guy, and I, you know, we talked all day yesterday. And it's like, you know, this, this is uh, surreal. I, I escaped it. My friends did it. Heroin is a drug that I took once. People say, "What do you mean you took it once?" So I'm talking to you. You took it once. I said, "Yes, I took it once." And after that, heroin took me to any place it wanted to. So I wrote my book, not to glamorize addiction like a lot of these memoirs. Uh, I want kids and fathers and potential fathers to read this and say, this is hell, man. You don't want to go this because only 3% of the people make it back. Hmm. So I, wanted, I didn't write this as a 50-year-old guy looking back in perspective. I wrote it as a 28-year-old madman junkie. I went back into that evil to show people what it was, and I, and I hope everybody reads it. Hmm. The book is What's Left of Us. Richard Farrell, thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Got to run. Thank you.